Okay, we are in Genesis chapter 18. And if you would turn there. Can God make a box that is too heavy for him to lift? I remember being asked that question as a kid. And I would be so puzzled. I was so intent. I'm going to figure this out. Um, you know, if, if God could make a box too heavy for him to lift, then maybe God wasn't all powerful. But if God could not make such a box, then doesn't that limit his ability as well? Either way, God was not all powerful, right? As a young kid, you don't realize that the question itself is flawed. It's like asking if God can make a square a circle. Of course, God could take a square and turn it into a circle, but to make a square a circle is impossible, right? Squares are squares, circles are circles. Um, It's just not a very good question. It's a question that really doesn't lead you anywhere. It's just, it sounds really pithy at the beginning, but it really is not a good question. But instead of asking questions like that, God asks good questions. God knows how to ask the questions that get to your heart. He knows how to ask the questions that that teach us about who He is and teach us about who we are. That's our God. So as we go through and I read through Genesis 18 in its entirety, I want you to pay attention to the questions. Um, There's a lot of questions in this. I'm going to actually pick out five of them to, to structure the the whole sermon around, but but just listen to the questions. And really, the first eight verses, you're going to say, there's no questions in the first eight verses, but but they're coming. So just pay attention to the, to the uh, questions as you go along. Beginning in verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and, and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought. Wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour. It's about two gallons. That's a lot of flour. Uh, Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, here's your questions, where is Sarah, your wife? He said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself. 
saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Second question, Why did Sarah laugh? And say, I shall indeed bear a child now that I am old. Is anything, third question, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. For she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, fourth question, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and uh, from there and went and stood toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That's the fifth question, the final question. Even though that Abraham asks it, I think God has led him to ask that question. So, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? He said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So there's five questions. But there are no questions in the first eight verses. And I do have some comments to make about those before we get into the questions. We see in this passage that God again takes the initiative with with his covenant partner. He appears to Abraham. But this encounter is different than his previous encounters. Abraham, uh, I mean, God has an agenda... He has business that he wants to teach Abraham, but before he gets down to business, he wants to have fellowship with Abraham. In this way, God 
instructs us into one of the most important principles of being in a covenant relationship with God. You see, God wants fellowship with his people. In the New Testament, we are told that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Whatever other lessons we're going to learn today, we must not miss the lesson that God desires to meet with us. He wants you to be in a face-to-face fellowship relationship with himself. And in this passage, Abraham distinguishes himself as a good host. Now his treatment of these visitors will be in direct contrast to how the Sodomites will treat the visitors in chapter 19. We'll get to that next week. But Abraham, from his perspective, he says, I value these men. He recognizes that they are from the Lord right away. And he says, I am going to be a gracious host to them. I'm going to provide the best for them. I'm going to try to honor them. And he is an example to every one of us of the attitude we should have with God. He doesn't merely want to get from God. Think about that for a moment. Is your relationship with God always gimme, 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 gimme? Or is it ever, I want to be with you. I want to provide for you. I want to bless you, God. He richly provides the best that he has to offer. You know, the the fine flour, the, the young calf, the curds, all these things that he provides. He is showing to God, oh my goodness, you have showed up at my house. That's the best thing in the world. Here's my question to us. Could the same be said of us? Jesus may not come to your house physically, but he does come to you. Revelation 3 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Do you see what he's saying? I want to be with my people. Do they love me? Do they want to be with me? And Abraham distinguishes himself by saying, yes, I will do anything. I value this relationship with you so much. And I ask us, is that how we treat God? Or when he knocks on the door of your heart, do you ignore him? Very interesting. God is driving us to ever-increasing experiences of fellowship with him. That's where he's taking us. So now we're into the questions. First question, where is Sarah? Now based on previous encounters, you might think that Sarah is irrelevant At least the faith of Sarah is irrelevant because God just keeps showing up to Abraham. But not here. God, in this one question, tells us that he is not only concerned for Sarah, he is concerned for the faith of every one of his covenant children. 
Whether or not Sarah actually has a strong faith is the point of this encounter. You know, God has asked where a couple times previously. He asked Adam and Eve, where are you, when they were hiding. He asked Cain, where's your brother, after he had killed him. This idea of where, God knows where they are. He wants them to think about this. Right? He wants Sarah to think about why are you hiding in the tent. And here's what I think's happening. Sarah is in a life and death struggle to believe the promise. And it is that struggle that is very hard to admit. You see, we know in the New Testament of the guy that says, I believe, help my unbelief. And that is acceptable. You know, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I have some doubts, but I believe. You could admit that to people around you, right? But how hard is it to admit, I'm not sure I believe. God knows everything that's going on in the heart of Sarah. The reason why he brings this visit, one of the reasons, is because he wants to address the struggle to believe in his daughter. My question to us, where are you? Are you hiding from God? Are you willing to admit the darker areas of your heart? The things that you are unwilling to admit to others. Do you know that you are laid bare before God? The Lord said in verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have, will, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So this is like the first time God actually brings a time scale into this, this equation, right? He's always just said, yeah, you're going to have kids, you know, it'll happen. But now he says, this time next year, it's going to happen. And again, God knows how to evoke laughter. And she laughs. She laughs to herself. She laughs privately. And I would tell you that laughter is not just a bad thing. In many ways, God is wanting us to laugh at the preposterousness that he will do these things, right? We learned that from last chapter in Abraham's laughter. But there's a difference between Sarah and there's a difference between Abraham. And it's not so much in the laughter itself. It's in hiding it from God. When Abraham laughs, he falls on his face and he laughs in front of God. Sarah hides her laughter from God. Why? Why? That's the next question. Why did Sarah laugh? You see, there's something dangerous going on here. We don't exactly know where, where Sarah's heart is. We don't know, you know, where do you cross the line from, I believe, help my unbelief, to, I don't believe. 
That's a hard place to be in our lives. And so God asked the question, why to get at the heart of the issue? You see, asking yourself why is really a challenging question. Most of us are not willing to do it. You know, she, she might have laughed because she was just so joyful. I'm happy, I can't believe it, hooray! Or she might have laughed because she really doesn't believe what God says. Or maybe there's some other reason. He says, why? And I ask you today. There's a thousand reasons that you do the things that you do. When you find yourself doing something wrong, do you just think about the action that was wrong? Or do you say to yourself, why did I do that? Why did I react that way? Why did I get angry? Why am I anxious? Why do I struggle to pray? Why do I not care to come to worship? You guys do because you're here, right? So, But you ask these questions, why? God knows how to get at the heart of what's going on. Then knowing why doesn't immediately solve the problem, but it at least helps you know what the heart of the problem is. You know, why do I find it so easy to not pray? Hmm. After lots of years of struggling and trying to pray more and more, hmm. I just don't think that prayer is as powerful as the other things that I'm doing. Kind of hard to admit that, isn't it? But that's the reason. Why is a good question to ask, and God asked this, asked this of her. Bottom line for Sarah is I think God already knows the answer why, because he gives it in his next question. Is anything too difficult? Too hard for the Lord? So I think he already knows the answer of why. And he gives it to her. Nothing is too difficult for me. And I want to just tell you that, you know, we we have a hard time associating her struggle to have a child in her 90s with our lives. But we all struggle to believe God's ability to help us in our daily lives. How can I ever get out of debt? How can I ever establish family worship? Seems impossible. But I think at the the heart, for me, the, the most basic question that I always have to ask myself is, am I too difficult for God to save? Has God met his match with me? That's the question. I know he can save Carrie, she's a nice lady, but, but I think of myself, no, he cannot save me. And you have to actually challenge the unbelief of your heart with that question. Is anything too hard for God? So he wants to, he's trying to build Sarah's faith, just like he's trying to build Abraham's faith, and just like he's trying to to build your faith. But there's an obstacle that has to happen. There's just, there's no way around this. There's no way to circumvent what God does in these next couple verses. Look at verse 15. Sarah denies it. I did not laugh. 
So what is she doing? She is hiding from God her lack of faith. And why does she do it? Text tells you she's afraid. Now there is a healthy fear of God. If you want to oppose God, you should be afraid of him. But Sarah's fear is motivated by an unhealthy and a wrong view of God's gentleness. She thinks that because she is doubting, somehow God will just crush her. But God does not crush those who come to him humbly. Notice how God responds. It's very brief. It's so easy to miss it. But he he just says, no, you did laugh. And it's so easy to go right past that. Go on to the next thing. But it's so powerful. See, what he does here is he gently rebukes her. You see, rebuke does not have to be something harsh. It doesn't have to be crushing the spirit. But it does have to call a spade a spade. God has to actually deal with the problem that's going on. No, no, Sarah, you can't hide about this. You're really struggling to believe. And he tells her the truth. That's a rebuke. It's not a, not a harsh rebuke. He's not trying to crush her. And in my opinion, it is, the, it is this gentle rebuke that brings her back to faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, Sarah is in this, the hall of faith. Listen to the statement. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And it's, just, it's like, wait a minute. It, the guy that wrote Hebrews... Does he really know what went on in Genesis? You see, because Sarah is viewed not from her struggle, she's viewed from the end point that God brought her to a living faith. And that's beautiful. He is the author and finisher of Sarah's faith. Faith is not natural to Sarah. He doesn't just throw out the promise and say, okay, Sarah, if you believe, you believe. No, he takes his time to help her so that she comes to engaging the promise of God for herself. Isaiah 42 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Oh, my. Are you afraid of God because of your doubts? Or can you take them to him? Because you know how gentle and how kind he is. So then we move on. Question number four. Verse 17. God says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Of course, God's not going to hide it from Abraham. He's asking the question to kind of say, huh, you mean God didn't have to show this to Abraham? So why is he going to show this to Abraham? What does that mean about Abraham and God's relationship with one another? Now, I don't know if you know this, but like we would, we would use this phrase a lot, right? Um, you're on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know. You ever heard that before? When you tell that to somebody, what are you telling them? 
they're not important enough to really know the whys behind what you're doing. Just do what I told you to do. Right? If that was the relationship between God and Abraham, we wouldn't even have this portion of Scripture. It's not the way he wants it. See, we as Christians have a far too low, a far too low of a view of who we really are. God is bringing Abraham into a relationship with himself like a husband and wife in a bride-groom relationship where they are one with one another. That's what he's doing. So the idea of shall God hide something from Abraham? Of course not. So God's going to show him what he's going to do. And what is he going to do? What is he about to do? Put it bluntly, God is going to pour out wrath on the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what he's going to do. Now this is where you go from like uh, addition and subtraction to algebra. God says in verse 18, Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. If you don't get that verse right there, you don't get what happens on the rest of this. Sodom and Gomorrah are nations of the earth. And God has told Abraham, every nation will be blessed in you. So he's trying to figure out, okay, how can every nation of the earth be blessed in me when you're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? That's the the tension that's going on here. And here's here's the principle that you have to get. Does God, does the the promise of blessing mean that God will not judge wickedness? Does it somehow mean that wicked people will just get a free pass? That's what he's teaching Abraham. And he's saying, no, Abraham. Mm -mm. That doesn't mean that. And I'm going to show you firsthand because I'm going to take some of these cities that that really belong to you and I'm going to destroy them. For their wickedness. You see, if your understanding of the gospel tells you that that turning away from wickedness doesn't matter, you've got it wrong. Christians continue to struggle with sin. We even get caught up in transgressions at times. Galatians 6 teaches that. We're supposed to help each other out of sin. We're supposed to to be careful that we don't fall into sin. All those kind of things happen, but we're not to just be like, oh, Jesus forgave us, we're good, we're going to heaven. Who cares how you live? Look at verse 19. God says, I have chosen Abraham. Why have I chosen Abraham? Well, the purpose is I may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And here's the kicker. So that the Lord may bring blessing, bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now here's the the thing. Abraham needed to know that he couldn't earn God's blessing. That was the lesson of faith that we've been talking about for the past several weeks. But he also needs to know that, Abraham, you will not see the fulfillment of my promises of blessing to you until all of your children keep the way of the Lord. I'm like, wait a minute, what does that mean? 
How is that possible? That's what he's telling him. Abraham, you're called to help your children and those in the covenant of grace to understand that if you want to remain in wickedness, you want to live ungodly, you don't want to repent of it and try to move away from unrighteousness, your destiny is the destiny of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's hard to say. It's what he says. I don't like it, but I do like it. And let me explain to you this. You see, the, the blessing that God gives is a righteous blessing. If you are a lover of wickedness, he could try to give you the blessing and you wouldn't even like it. So here's my illustration. Many of you are not Southerners, some of you are, but I do not like okra. Just know, I do not like it. I might be able to eat some of it in gumbo soup, but I just, give me, you know, okra by itself. I don't like it. But a good southerner will come to me thinking, oh, I got some fresh okra in my garden, and I want to bless Mike. And they'll say, can I give you some okra? And I say, okay. Right? It's not a blessing to me. Now, if you could miraculously make me love okra, then the okra would be a blessing. Do you understand that the covenant promises are righteous promises? You cannot actually enjoy the fulfillment of those promises unless you actually love righteousness. And that's what God is telling to Abraham. So God, he's got to somehow split it up. He's got people who love righteousness. He's got people who hate righteousness. And somehow he's got to divide them and judge them. And that's the rest of the story. I'll go quickly here. I'm not going to go through all that repeat repetition of the prayer that he does. But that's what's going on. You're on two tracks. Not one of you is fully righteous right now. You still love wickedness at times. And you, you, know, you still have the old heart. But you're either on the track to loving righteousness. Or you're on the track to loving wickedness. Some of us like flirt with wickedness. I, I, I flirted with wickedness, so I know what that feels like. So, so like you flirt with it because you really don't, you don't tell, you tell yourself, I don't really want to go down to the really bad, bad wickedness, but, but just taste it a little bit. But you have to understand, God doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Satan is never happy with just a little bit of sin. He's just going to keep reeling you in until you become as wicked as you could possibly be. And God is putting you on a path and saying, I'm going to make you righteous by my grace. I'm going to drive you to righteousness. Romans 6 says, you're actually a slave to righteousness. Because I will not stop until you are fully righteous. You're not there yet. But the question is, on what road are you? Are you on this track or are you on this track? Sometimes I think I'm on the track to righteousness and I'm on the train I'm kind of walking the other way and God says well, the train's going this way you got to keep going that way but this is the issue and then it comes down to the very last question and that is will you do wrong God you're about ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah is it possible that there could be some righteous person there that you would sweep away with all the judgment of the wicked that's his question. Because if God could do that, 
I mean, think about in our lives how you feel so bad. If someone is accused of murder and they're put in jail and 20 years later they come out that they really weren't the murderer, we feel terrible for them. They've lost their life. What if God did that? What if he actually judged someone to an eternal hell that was righteous? How could we worship such a God? And so God, in this whole story, he takes the time, he sends down the two angels to investigate, he makes sure that he gets it right. God knows the nuances of every heart, he knows where you are, are you, have you been born again in Christ, are you not in Christ? He knows all of that stuff. He never makes a wrong judgment. And he is able, somehow, to judge the wicked and to rescue his righteous ones. And I, I know tomorrow, next week we'll talk about how, how in the world can Lot be called righteous. That's a hard question, but we'll deal with that next week. But Second Peter in our scripture reading tells us he's righteous. I think he's on that path to righteousness because of God's grace. I also think that, that, that God is teaching us something in the intercession of Abraham. So he is, God is eliciting this, this uh, out of Abraham because God knows he chose Sodom and Gomorrah not just because they were wicked. He chose them knowing that Lot was down there. Because he wants Abraham to, to say, no, don't, don't destroy my son Lot or my nephew Lot. And God knows that. And ultimately, Abraham functions like a type of Christ here. Because the only reason why you were rescued out of Sodom and Gomorrah is because of the prayers of Jesus Christ on your behalf. He intercedes for you. So here we go. Just summary lessons real quick. I know it's been long. Number one, remember to be a good host to the Lord. Number two, remember that God is gentle in his rebukes. Number three, don't ever forget that when you think you're unsavable, you're actually telling God that he, you are too strong or uh, too hard for him to save. Remember that. Fourthly, remember that the purpose of salvation is to teach you to keep the way of the Lord. Righteousness matters. This doesn't save you your own righteousness, but it matters. And then number five, God is just when he judges. There's still a judgment coming. He will never do wrong in that judgment. He will always do right. We can trust him with that. But it's coming. Isn't it fun that God knows how to ask good questions? We serve a good God. He is a holy God. He's not a tame God, but he is a good God. Amen.